<laughs> she said, what happened to the young part? <laughs> she still has a sense of humor, too. It's a pleasure to be here. I uh, saw all of you uh, last at the Calvin College meeting. I live literally right next to the campus of Calvin College. It's a matter of perhaps three inches between my property and, and the Calvin property. Uh, but that was a very successful meeting, and I enjoyed being there. I'll be talking about something different this time at your request, and uh, we'll see how it goes. But first of all, a, a test. You know, I'm a former professor. We start out with a test. And uh, since you're all scientists, I'm going to, you're supposed to be good observers. First question, <clears throat> and also the last question. What does Susan have that I need? Hey, very good. You're very observant. <laughs> now, at this point, I would love to pull out a toupee and put it on, <laughs> but I won't. What you see is what you get with me. Well, I'll talk a little bit about what that means. What you see is what you get when you're talking about uh, the, the Congress. And uh, we'll, we'll see uh, what comes out. Uh, Jennifer referred to the Kerry Lecture for the AAAS, which I gave recently, and uh, I'm going to say some of the same things I said there, so you'll be able to hear it twice. They, uh, in fact, during that speech, I used a term. I called myself an accidental congressman. Uh, a better term, actually, would be a providential congressman, and you'll find out as I go through why that is true. I never, ever intended to enter politics. Just never thought of it. I, I, I can't say that I never considered it in any way, but I just looked at that and said, yeah, well, we have congressmen. We need congressmen. And I didn't get involved until uh, some many years ago. I attended a meeting of the American Physical Society in San Francisco. And a congressman by the name of McDermott spoke. He was a chemist, and he gave an excellent speech about what it means to be a scientist in Congress and gave a plea that more of our scientific brethren and sisters should join the Congress, in other words, should run for office and get elected. I heard that speech, and I thought, you know, that's really a good thing. Uh, but that what just didn't appeal to me. But what did appeal to me was a comment he made, if you can't do that, at least get to know your member of Congress and see what you can do to advise him or her in the issues facing them, scientific issues. I thought, that's something I can do. At the time, I happened to be at the University of Colorado in Boulder, Colorado. I was on sabbatical from Calvin College and was spending a year at the Joint Institute for Laboratory Astrophysics, wonderful institution. And afterwards, they elected me a non-resident fellow, so I went back, for, went back there for three years uh, working during the summer. It was a wonderful experience. And, but when I returned from the APS meeting in San Francisco and got back to Boulder, I remember the comments of McDermott, try to help your member of Congress. 
My member of Congress was Jerry Ford, and I knew Jerry Ford largely because of him, not because of me. I had met him a few times. He was a consummate politician in the good sense of the word and incredible memory for faces and names. So the first time I met him, I was grand, brand new, and second time I met him, a couple of months later, he remembered who I was and uh, referred to me as the professor from Calvin. And the third time I met him, he remembered my name, and we had a good discussion. Now, that's pretty impressive. What really impressed me when I got to know him really well was a few years later walking down the streets of Grand Rapids with him, and uh, he was meeting all kinds of people. They all said, hi, Jerry, how are you doing? And he would respond, giving their names. That's pretty impressive. Anyway, he was uh, very capable, much more capable than the media gave him credit for, uh, but also of a a very fine person. I, I got to know him quite well. So I sent him a line. I said I'd heard this speech from McDermott, and I would be happy to work with uh, Mr. Ford to keep him up to abreast of scientific ideas, and I'd be happy to form a committee of scientists from his district who could meet with him and answer any questions he might have about scientific issues. I dropped it in the mailbox in Boulder, Colorado, thought, well, Let's see, one, two, three, four days, I'll get an answer that will say, thank you for your letter. We will keep it in mind in case we have need of you. Signed, Jerry Ford. Instead, the day after I dropped it in the mailbox, I got a call from Jerry Ford's chief of staff in Washington. Said, uh, we got your letter, and, and Jerry read it personally, and he's very excited about it. And uh, would really like to have you put together this group of scientists to meet with them. So uh, that was encouraging, and so I called the chief of staff back and said, I'm going to be in Washington three weeks for a meeting uh, dealing with science and physics, and I'd be happy to stop by and talk about it. And he says, sure, please do. So I went and talked uh, to Mr. Ford and his chief of staff, and we basically structured an advisory committee. And then I asked him one very important question, at least I thought it was important. I said, do you want me to select only Republican scientists, or is it okay if I choose scientists based on their ability? The chief of staff immediately popped up. <laughs> of course, the most capable people are all Republicans anyway. <laughs> but, <laughs> but, but at any rate, <laughs> but at any rate, uh, it was interesting because immediately the chief of staff interrupted and said, of course, we would want only Republicans. And Jerry Ford looked at him and said, I don't see why. Pick the best people you can. And that told me a lot about Jerry Ford. So I put together uh, a group of scientists of both parties. In fact, one was a, an avid Democrat, even worse than avid. And uh, and he also you know contributed well. So that was my experience in Congress and politics. I never that you know never dreamed that would lead to anything else. I had no intention of doing anything else. We met with Jerry, oh, generally about four times a year. Uh, if he needed a meeting, he would let me know, and I would call a meeting if I thought there was something coming up.
that he should know about, I would call him and say, I think we need a meeting. Otherwise, we just met on a quarterly schedule. I also learned something very important about the Congress from those meetings. Because I talked to Jerry after uh, one of our meetings, and it had been a particularly good meeting. I says, I don't understand, Mr. Ford. I said, you are a very busy man. I know you are very busy because I know the person who runs your office in Grand Rapids. And when you fly into town and spend a weekend here, you're in your office all day on Saturday meeting with people one after the other after the other. And then we pile this meeting with the scientist on top of that. I says, isn't that a bit much? He said, <clears throat> and he was, he's a pretty big guy, put his arm around my shoulder and said, Vern, there's one thing you've got to understand. He said, when I come back here, I meet with constituents. And all day long, they are asking me for something. Or they want me to do something for them. Or they want me to try to get, improve the funding for diabetes because they have a diabetic, diabetic child. He says, your committee that you put together is the only committee I meet with that is giving me something and not asking me for something. And he says, I really, truly enjoy it. It says, I learned a lot from every meeting. So that really shows what kind of person he is, too. He just was uh, almost consumed by the job of being a good congressman. And here is the minority leader of the Congress of the United States spending time with us just because he wanted to learn more about science. Well, as I say, that's my, that was my introduction to the Congress, and, and uh, that's, I thought that was a wonderful thing for me to do to try to help the country. That's, I never intended it to become anything else. The, uh, what happened, however, though, and uh, I got more and more involved with the Congress, with the President. In fact, it's very interesting because at one point I talked with President Ford about coming to Washington, working in his office for a year. I would take a sabbatical and work for him. And uh, he said I would, he would like to do that, and we'd be happy to arrange it. And about that time, uh, a few weeks after that, he became a, uh, a, a vice presidential candidate and then a vice president. And so I talked to him again, actually. I visited him in Washington and said, you know, we had talked about my coming, spending a year with, your, with you. And I'm still willing to do it, but you've got a different job now. Can you still use me? And uh, he consulted with his aides and decided at this point in his life he didn't need that extra complication. And the vice president didn't have much to do with science policy anyway. So I never did it. But uh, it was uh, one of those interesting events in my life. I, the real way I got into politics, however, had nothing to do with that. And this, I hope, is a lesson for each of you and something that you will remember, because I hope you will develop an interest in getting politically involved in some fashion. It doesn't have to be the Congress, uh, as you will find out from my progression through life. But I, uh, I was at Berkeley initially, and then I went to Calvin College, an excellent, excellent uh, liberal arts college in Grand Rapids, Michigan. I had attended there as a student, was very pleased with it. And shortly after I got my PhD, they started calling me and asking if I would come back. 
and teach at Calvin. And you know, I was at that time doing research and teaching at Berkeley, number one university in the world in physics at that time. It's very hard to leave. And so I said no several times. And finally, after several years, my conscience bothered me. said, I really have a responsibility to Calvin. And so I went back to Calvin. The, when we moved there, my wife and I started looking for a church. I am a member of the Christian Reformed Church. My father was a pastor in that. And uh, if you go to Calvin College and are looking for a Christian Reformed Church, uh, there's no problem finding one. <laughs> I think there's something like 30 or 40 within the, within the metropolitan area. Uh, so we visited most of them. And we ended up going to Eastern Avenue Christian Reformed Church. Why? Because we visited all the others. And Eastern was in the middle of the inner city. And they had had race riots just a few blocks from Eastern Avenue Christian Reformed Church uh, about two or three weeks before we moved to uh, Grand Rapids. And so my wife and I thought, why don't we go there and let's see what we can do to help the poor in that neighborhood help stabilize the neighborhood altogether and so forth. So we did, and that got me involved in the community for the first time in my life. It's not that I was a hermit or anything, but, you know, in the normal course of life, how often do you end up in the, in the living room of a family that's uh, a mother with four children and uh, trying to live off the welfare allotment? You just don't anticipate it, don't know what it's like, et cetera, and what you can do to help. So I got involved there. Uh, Our church then proceeded to appoint a social justice committee and decided to name me the chair of that. And so I took that seriously and got involved more widely. And that put me in contact with a lot of other churches of all denominations trying to do the same thing. And so I soon got got to be known as the guy from Eastern Avenue who uh, knew something about this. The, um, I soon learned that this part of the problem was the city commission was not particularly good, and many of the commissioners were not particularly good. I had some good friends who went to Eastern Avenue who were also aware of that, had done the same thing I had had, and uh, we worked in the community together. And then I uh, met an insurance representative, a very fine Christian, who was also interested in improving the community. So we got together and said, we have to build up the city commission. And so we would go around each election. We'd look around. Who are the best candidates running? We would pick the ones we thought were best. We'd go visit them and say, we think you're the best. We'd like to help your campaign. I don't know if you've ever been involved with a political campaign. I've been involved with many. But I have to tell you, When you need volunteers, you just call everyone you've ever known or heard of and say, I need your help. Would you please come to this meeting and could you volunteer, et cetera, et cetera. You're always begging for volunteers. And to have five volunteers show up at your doorstep who really know how to campaign and what's involved and to say, we think you're the best and we'd like to help you, just unheard of. Now, our goal there was not to get political power but we got it because if our candidate won, and I don't recall ever losing, if our candidate won, 
they were in office, and they knew who to call if they needed help, and they knew who to call if they needed advice. So that got me into the political mainstream. Now, this is an awfully long history, but I want to give you the history in the background because I'm hoping that some of you, or perhaps all of you, will follow that path and try to become politically involved because I am convinced that Christians have to be politically involved. That's part of our responsibility uh, in society and part of our responsibility as church members. The, uh, uh, not everyone sees it that way. My father, I think, was quite pleased with what I was doing. My mother was horrified that I was in politics, and she never quite got used to the idea when I was elected later to the county commission. She was just horrified. She finally sold herself that maybe it wasn't so bad when she heard that that's really a half-time job and I could still continue working half-time at Calvin College. And she figured whatever damage the county commissioners did to me in the morning, the faculty at Calvin would straighten me out on it uh, that afternoon. And so she finally came to uh, recognize that maybe it was okay with what I was doing. The, uh, our, our little group came to be called, in jest more or less, the, uh, politi- the hidden political powerhouse of Grand Rapids. We really didn't have that much power, but we just helped good people get elected, and if you help good people and they get elected, they do good things. I was heavily involved in environmental issues about that time. The environmental movement was just starting. One evening I read in the newspaper that the West Michigan Environmental Action Council was forming that evening at the museum. So I thought, well, why don't I go to that meeting and see what it's about? And before I knew it, I was a member. And a month later, I was a member of the board, etc. So I, then I was involved in something else involving public justice. So uh, out of that, people soon started saying, why aren't you running for something? Especially those people that I had helped get along. And I just resolutely refused. I said, I don't, I don't want to run. I said, I, I like to help people get elected. And after the election, they go to work and I go home. And that was a good arrangement to me. And I accomplished my objectives that way. But eventually, uh, the county developed a huge environmental problem. There's headlines in the paper every day. I started feeling guilty about that. Then the county commissioner from my area decided to quit, and so I ran for his office with with a lot of encouragement and help. No one gave me a chance because I had just worked through the churches, whereas the power structure in the city was centered more about about the, the business area and the people running businesses and so. And so they scarcely knew me. But uh, I did... I had learned how to campaign, and that's a very important factor because too many people who are very good intentions start campaigning, don't know quite what they're doing, and pretty soon they mess up. So uh, I I, uh, ran for the county commission. No one gave me much of a chance. The people opposing me uh, was a man who owned all the parking lots in Grand Rapids. Everyone knew his name because it was in every parking lot and every parking garage. Fortunately, none of them liked the fees he charged. So, 
so that helped me a little bit. Uh, but then also there was a city commissioner running, and uh, I, they thought I didn't have a chance against him. And also the son of a major theater owner in Grand Rapids, and everyone knew his name because of all the ads in the paper every day, with big, his name in big letters. So no one gave me a chance. But as I said, I had learned how to campaign. And I wrote, sat down, wrote down 10 things I would have to do to win. And uh, I just followed that chart. And these were not difficult things, but simple things such as when you're going door to door and talking to constituents, always leave something of value with your name on it. Now, you've probably been subject to this in every political campaign. The candidates come knocking on your door, and if, they're, if you're home, they'll hand you this brochure and say, I'm running for such and such, please vote for me. And if you're not at home, they'll just write a little note on it and stick it in your door. My rule that I wrote out was always leave something of value. Then the next question was, what could I leave of value? because I'm convinced the brochure lasts from the door to the wastebasket. So I came up with the idea, since I was running on an environmental platform, I uh, went out and bought 3,000 spruce seedlings, which sounds like a lot until you realize it's about this much. <laughs> They're all cramped together. Got volunteers to pot them. I went down the street with my daughter and her little red wagon, and we handed out these little potted seedlings. And then I put a label on the side which says, plant this tree and vote for Vern. Keep Kent County green. Uh, a lot of people were fascinated by that. I also included some planting instructions that said, uh, for, for maximum growth and propagation, keep this tree on your windowsill until mid-November. <laughs> <laughs> And then plant in your backyard. <laughs> now, believe it or not, you laugh, but those are the correct planting instructions for a spruce tree <laughs> in Michigan. And uh, so all of these people were looking at my name and said, plant this tree and vote for Vern for two and a half months until the election. At any rate, I, I won uh, fairly handily, not, not easily, but fairly handily. So I was in the county commission. The one thing I did not anticipate, and you should be aware of this, is that once you are in public office, people literally propel you on to higher office if you're doing a decent job. I was on the county commission less than one month, and people started talking to me and saying, hey, you're too good for the county commission. You ought to go to the state house or to the state senate. And so be prepared that if you do a good job, those things will happen. At any rate, I, uh, I learned how to campaign. I don't want to go into all the campaign techniques I used, but I think you get the, the flavor of it. Now, there's another aspect of all of this and in, in my involvement, which I think is very important. And if you haven't read C.P. Snow's little book on the two cultures, and it came out about 30 or 40 years ago, Dig it out and read it again. It's a gem, an absolute gem. And uh, I had read it a couple of times, and I was very well aware of the issues involved. 
And his point was simply that we are developing into two cultures, what he called the scientific, and I forget the name he used for the, I think the literary, literary types, and about how they weren't really talking to each other anymore. They didn't understand each other anymore. And you really had to do that. And that is absolutely true and is still true. Uh, and I, I constantly meet people who are just shocked that I'm a scientist. You know, they've, they've read about me in the paper for years. They know what I've done. Most of them agree with it. And then they have no idea that I'm a scientist. So then that comes out, and they're really puzzled. How, how, why, how'd you get into politics? Why? You know, what does that have to do with science, et cetera? So I had to do a lot of explaining in my life that science is very essential to all people. It's very essential to all governments. And it should be the duty of every citizen to know enough about science so that they can vote intelligently on issues that have to be dealt with in the public uh, arena. So I, uh, and, and the public, as you, as you know, is not that knowledgeable about science. And uh, I, I, have, I have that all the time. I have to throw this little one in just for fun because I have to, I, I've always felt uncomfortable with it. But then I started playing games with it. Uh, people would like to introduce me and say, I know it's hard for you to believe that there could be a rocket scientist in Congress. But Vern Ehlers is a rocket scientist, and he's a congressman, you know, a big, boring introduction. And uh, I, I have to correct that. You know, how do you do it politely? And I, finally, I just adopted I says, well, I'm not really a rocket scientist. I said, I, I'm a nuclear physicist. And I, <laughs> and, uh, and I said, it doesn't really matter. You, you, you can call me whatever you want. But uh, you should know that most nuclear physicists look down at rocket scientists. <laughs> <laughs> So, so that's always good for a laugh. So at any rate, that's how my story of how I got involved in politics. Is it worth it? And why did I do it? I think you understand. Much of the reason for doing it lies in my religious commitment. And when I said it at the beginning that I was, you could think of me as an accidental uh, politician or an accidental congressman, I uh, prefer thinking that it's, uh, it's, it's not an accident, that God intended it this way. And I jest about it a bit, too, because I always say I'm sure that God wanted me to be a congressman, because I certainly didn't want to be one. And, uh, but uh, God worked it out, and I got there. The, uh, it, it is very important, as far as I'm concerned, not only for scientists to be in politics, but also for Christians to be in politics, and above all, Christians who are scientists, because then you can deal with both of the issues I've been talking about, the importance of science to the public, but also the Christian witness. And I can assure you, I get lots of times for that. And uh, I get, uh, it's died down again now, but for a while, Almost everywhere I spoke, someone would raise the issue. What do you think about teaching evolution in schools, public schools? And I said, well, first of all, I'm not on the boards of education. 
and I think this is a very important issue, but I don't think the Congress should be settling this. I think it should be settled by people, good people of faith, and perhaps some who don't have faith, uh, working together at the local level. Uh, you don't need to drag Congress into this particular argument. But uh, some are not satisfied with that and think that the Congress should, in fact, legislate the way they think it should be done. The, uh, but scientists, uh, we, we as scientists have a lot to offer the public. Uh, there are so many different areas that, that we are knowledgeable about. And I'm not talking that each one of you is knowledgeable about lots of areas, but collectively, you're knowledgeable in many areas and often these are very important areas in, in your daily life and in the daily lives of people. And also, many of the things that people encounter in their lives uh, really involve matters of faith. And I'm always surprised at how many people will come to me asking for advice of one sort or another. And really, at, at the base, their problem is often religious rather than some other type of problem. And so this gives a lot of opportunities for witness. And also, uh, it gives me a lot of opportunities to talk about my world and life view and why I'm proud to be a Christian and why I think that it's important for Christians to be out there in the world and uh, that we need more Christians in the Congress as well. By the way, there are a great many Christians in the Congress, which always surprises a lot of people. Uh, we have a prayer breakfast every Thursday morning. I've been uh, president of that in the past. In fact, I became president of the National uh, Prayer Breakfast, which is a mammoth event with 2,500 people. It's held every February. And uh, it was a great honor to be selected to be president of that. Uh, and it's just a matter of you know, not running around saying, I'm a Christian, I'm a Christian, I'm a Christian. I've got the answers. But just plain old hard work and helping your colleagues when they have problems, and a lot of them have problems. Uh, being in Congress is not conducive to a good Christian life. It uh, creates a lot of family difficulties, and I feel very deeply for those who went to Congress when they were fairly young. They have young children. There is absolutely no good solution for them as to where they should settle, whether they want to move the whole family to Washington, and then the, the uh, congressional person in the family has to go home every weekend to give speeches and so forth, or is it better for the whole family to stay back home and the member of Congress fly into Washington every week? And there's no good solution for a family of children because the children are all constantly being upset and moved around. So it's a very difficult life. Uh, and whether you're a Christian or not a Christian, it's very difficult in the family. For someone who's older like me, it's not a problem, particularly since I have a very patient and kind and thoughtful wife. And uh, although she spent most of the first year with me in Washington, once you've seen every museum, there's not a lot to do. And <laughs> So she moved back to Michigan. She's very happy there and has done a lot of good work helping people back there. And I'm here, and every weekend I fly home and go to church there, which is very renewing to me, uh, just to, to meet with my friends 
together in church and to hear the minister talk about things that almost always have some sort of direct bearing on what I'm doing in Congress. So uh, it, that works fine for us, but it doesn't work fine if you have children. So keep members of Congress in your prayers because it is a, a very difficult life. It's a very busy life. I average 80 hours a week. Uh, fortunately, as a physicist, I started out working 80 hours a week. <laughs> and those of you who are scientists know what I'm talking about. Everything always goes wrong about Saturday afternoon at 3 o'clock. And you have to run into the lab and straighten it out. Uh, but um, I, I don't mind working hard as long as I'm getting things done. And, but you, you have to recognize you're a member of Congress if, he's, if he or she is doing the job. is probably spending 40 hours a week at it, too. So uh, bear some sympathy for them. The, uh, a lot of things, it's, it's, it's really an adjustment. I think that's a problem that many scientists have with running for public office because there are some serious adjustments to make. Uh, you're, you're just working with people who generally operate differently. They may be attorneys who are used to handling things in a certain way. And, and you really have to get into the culture of the, the body that you're elected to. And whether it's a state house, state senate, the Congress, what have you. Uh, but also be able to talk to them in, in their language. And it's hard to explain what I, what I mean by that. But you really have to develop the technique of understanding where people are and trying to meet their needs for understanding what you're trying to say. And it's, uh, it can often be difficult. But also when you're campaigning, you have to have, to have the ability to do that. Uh, let me give an example. When I first ran for the Congress, and I had been in office a number of years until a lot of people knew me pretty well, and I knew a lot of people. But still, you're running for Congress. We had 30 candidates running, one parole candidate, uh, two Democrats, all the rest Republicans, because it was largely a Republican district. And uh, you know, how do you stand out in a group of 30 other candidates? And a lot of them were attorneys, and some were business people. And, you know, I'd go to these forums. We had a forum every night for 30 nights. This was a special election. My predecessor died in office. So every night I was at a debate uh, with my opponents. And you have to be fresh every night and think of what to say. Well, it turned out most of the people didn't know I was a scientist. And even when they did find out, they weren't quite sure whether that was good or bad in terms of running for Congress. And so how could I address that? And then my attorney friends, whom I was running against, would get up and say, I'm an attorney. I spent a lot of time in law school. I'm very proud of knowing the law very well. And if you elect me and I go to Washington, I will write good laws. You won't have all these strange judgments by the courts because the laws I write will be good, they'll be clear. And then the businessman would get his turn and say, I'm a businessman. I've started with scratch. I didn't have any money at all. I've worked very, very hard. I know how to run a business, how to start it. And you can depend on me to watch the money, and I will get rid of the national deficit. <laughs> and then they come to me, and what am I going to say? 
I'm a physicist. I'll see that the nuclear bombs are taken care of. <laughs> that just doesn't work. Then I got a brilliant idea called the, the uh, Library of Congress, got some information. And that night, we happened to be having a debate, uh, which was on television live. So that was, a, that was just coincidence. I didn't plan it that way. But it was perfect, considering the result. And uh, they went through their bit. The lawyers got up and talked about how they were going to write good law. The businessman was going to get rid of the deficit. And I said, you know, that all sounds very good. But I called the Library of Congress today. And there are 174 attorneys in the Congress. And somehow I think adding one more attorney is not going to make the laws much better. And then I looked, and there are 135 business people in the Congress. And somehow I think adding one more business person is not going to improve the national deficit very much. But if you elect me, you will double the number of scientists in Congress. <laughs> and the place just exploded. And the lawyer and the businessman never said a word again about what they were going to do. And uh, in mine, of course, it, my comment had gone out on live TV, so everyone instantly knew I was a scientist and said, hey, you know, that might be a good, good thing. So you really have to adapt yourself to the political world. And that was just a case of campaigning. But in the debates on the floor, in discussions in committees, and Jennifer can witness to that, the complexity of the discussion sometimes, and you just have to develop the ability to say the right thing at the right time and in the right way to make your point without insulting anyone else. Now, I will tell you one humorous story uh, just to show, and, and this was part of my education too, and some of you may have heard this already, but uh, I, uh, as I mentioned earlier, I'm a staunch environmentalist, and uh, I am very concerned about invasive species, particularly invasive animals, are getting a lot of trouble from that. And uh, we had terrible problems in Michigan. Some of you are from Michigan know about the problems in the Great Lakes with the zebra mussels, which got in, costing a lot of money to power plants and uh, to cities, cleaning out the water pipes constantly, et cetera. And so, uh, you know, the question is, what can you do about it? Well, I got put on the science committee, which was sort of an obvious thing. And shortly after I got on that, there was a bill was put in to provide funding to do research on zebra mussels and to learn more about how they operated, how they reproduced, and see if we could find a way to get rid of the zebra mussels. And I spoke up passionately in favor of the bill. I said, this is a wonderful thing to do. We have, we have to do it. This is a major problem, et cetera. And... Uh, the next speaker was a gentleman from a totally different part of the country where they didn't have zebra mussels. And he says, I object. I see no reason to spend all this money, all this taxpayer's money, doing research on the mussels of zebras. <laughs> well, you know, I'm... I'm not the brightest bulb in the room, but I knew then that 
I had some education to do. The little light went on that said education, education. And I found out I really had to educate my colleagues about the Great Lakes. Those of us who live around the Great Lakes just think, Everyone knows about the Great Lakes. They're wonderful. They're huge bodies of fresh water, best in the world, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, you can re recite the whole litany about it. But it, it just struck me. Here's this person from California, didn't even know what a zebra mussel was. So <clears throat> I had to laugh about a month ago. I was given an award by an environmental group, and it was a nice plaque and so forth. But afterwards, he said, we have a special award for you because some of them, they've pro propagated this zebra muscle story around the country. And so he takes out his shopping bag and reaches in, and there's a nice zebra. So that has a problem. <laughs> it's stuffed zebra, not a real one. <laughs> and so that's proudly displayed in my office. Now. But it really uh, was an eye-opener to me because I began educating my colleagues about the Great Lakes. I have now become known as Mr. Great Lakes. I never dreamed that would happen when I went there. Never dreamed I would spend that much time on it. But to me, it's a very important issue. It's part of God's creation and a very special part of God's creation. And we should all be working to preserve his creation in every way we can. Well, that's... Uh, Actually, being in Congress can be a lot of fun if you have a good sense of humor. And uh, most congressmen have a good sense of humor. They like to make a point with their statements. And there was one the other day I thought was really kind of funny. Uh, the doctor and the lawyer, well, there's, there's a, a doctor at a cocktail party. And someone came up to him and said, doctor, I'm having this pain over here, and I don't know what it is. Uh, do you suppose you can tell me what it is and what, what I can do about it? And so the doctor politely just explained that he could talk about it for a minute, but she'd have to come in and see him if she really wanted an exam. Uh, but at any rate, he tried to put her, her, put her mind at ease. And then he turned around, and there was an attorney there. And he said, the attorney, does that ever happen to you? He says, I don't know how to deal with this. People are always coming coming up to parties and asking me about their ailments and what I can do. And I, you know, I hate to just be crude and cut them off. And he said, what do, you, what do you do if this happens? And the attorney says, oh, it's very simple. I tell them, I give them my free legal advice, and the next day I send them a bill. <laughs> and the doctor says, hey, good idea. I'll have to do that too. So the next day he got a bill from the attorney. <laughs> So there, there's a lot of humor that floats around the, around the Congress, and it's not all hard work. The, um, the one thing that uh, Jennifer referred to that I, I got stuck with, I've been stuck with several things. Uh, one of them was to computerize the House of Representatives, which was a horrible job. Uh, Newt Gingrich is a bit of a, a techie. I don't know how well you know Newt Gingrich, but he's quite a techie, so he assigned me the job of, of computerizing the House of Representatives, and it badly needed. When I got there, I found it was easier to send an email to the Kremlin than to send it 20, down the, 20 feet down the hall to a colleague. 
so I got assigned the job of straightening it out, which I did. Terrible job, but at any rate, we got it done. But uh, then after that, uh, I talked to Newt again, and I said, you know, we don't have a good science policy for the nation. The last one was written in 1945 by Vannevar Bush for Franklin Roosevelt. And I said, we had to do better. He said, well, why don't you write one? So casually, he's giving me gave me the job, which took about a year and a half. At any rate, we wrote it. It's still out there. It didn't create any big waves. But it's kind of fun for me to just see every year there's a few more references to it and so forth. And I'm hoping that someone who's knowledgeable will pick up the idea and say, yes, we need a complete science policy. But all those things take an immense amount of time, and you have to, that's where the 80 hours a week adds up and, and comes into effect. The, um, my, my final plea, then, is for all of you who are scientists or scientists' spouses, uh, think seriously about running for office. It's, it's a noble profession. And you are definitely needed there. And it is amazing to me how many people have been affected by my Christian witness. And I'm not the sort of person who goes out there preaching constantly, uh, but just the fact that I am a scientist. But so many people have the idea that sometimes if you're a scientist, then you must be an atheist. You know, that's a lot of the public feels that way. And so it's, it's great to be out there and, and just say, well, um, this, this is one view that is held usually by people who are uh, not re Christian and this is another view that is held primarily by Christ people who are Christian and there's a scientific basis for looking at these at that way but you really ought to get into it and understand it because at heart these are very important issues of life life of all kinds. And uh, hearing a scientist talk about faith and life uh, is a real change for a lot of people. And it really, uh, it really makes an impact on them, especially younger people. And I, I recall I spoke at a major university once, and just casually in the course of the conversation uh, threw in comments like, well, that's the way God made it. You know, they would ask about some physics I was talking about, and I said, that's the way that God made it. And we've been, physicists have been studying for this, studying this for years, and we've come up with these theories that jive very nicely uh, with, with the idea that God created this. And uh, I recall one university I, I spoke, and, and afterwards there were, four or five students waiting in the hallway outside wanting to talk to me about that comment. And uh, what, uh, you know, what kind of faith I have, what led me to this, and that they were people of faith. They'd grown up with religious beliefs, and they had been dismayed when they got to the university to hear all these presentations with absolutely no mention of God whatsoever. Uh, except perhaps occasionally a derogatory reference. And so for them to hear, hear this, uh, to hear a scientist talk about religion, it's really important. Now, I was not invited to speak there because I was a scientist. I was invited to speak there because I was a congressman who happened also to be a scientist. 
So again, getting in public office, getting in the public sphere, gives you tremendous opportunities for witness in, in very meaningful ways. So keep that in mind as well. Well, I've talked far too long. Uh, I don't know if you want me to take any questions. Well, I'd rather not, but I'll be happy to. <laughs> if, yeah, if you have any burn, burning questions. Well, uh, that was a problem for me because, you know, I had never in my life read a book on science policy. And I was surprised when I was, I was assigned to the science committee. That was a natural because I was a scientist, first one that had come along for a while. And uh, I, uh, the very first time I went to a committee meeting, I asked the ranking Republican, that's the highest ranking Republican. When you're in the minority, they're called ranking members. And uh, I asked him, you know, how many scientists do you have in your staff? Uh, he says, we don't have any. And I said, well, don't you need scientists on the staff of the science committee? <laughs> and he said, well, we deal with science policy, not so much with science. <laughs> And uh, he said, so, so most of the staff members are uh, people with political science or something like that who understand science policy. Uh, that struck me as rather strange, and I managed to turn that around. So now both parties have a number of scientists on staff. But even so, science policy was, is primarily what the committee deals with uh, in, in many cases. And... Uh, yeah, there are good books on science policy. I had to chuckle when, when I wrote this book that I did, and it got out there. And when most of the reviews of it were, I thought, rather tolerantly kind, and uh, just said, you know, this, this is a good start, good thing to talk about, which is all I intended. And But one chap of George Mason University wrote, rather nasty review of it and said it's nothing new there. It's all old stuff and, you know, this guy doesn't know much about science policy. Uh, if he had called me, I would have told him the same thing. But, uh, but in any event, uh, I, I, I was kind of irritated with him, not because he criticized my work, but because he had the ability to write a good book on science policy and he didn't do it. He would just rather sit at his desk and criticize someone who had. So uh, science policy deals with a lot of issues, primarily deciding the allocation of resources, who, who should get money and why. Uh, for example, Newt Gingrich will tell anyone in the world that his biggest mistake as a Speaker of the House of Representatives is that he arranged to double the amount of funding for the National Institute of Health but he did not double the funding for the National Science Foundation. So that gave huge preference to the life sciences as compared to the physical sciences. And you really need both if you're going to make progress. So uh, and, and those, if you think that's not true, just recognize that 
X-rays were discovered by a physicist. MIR, MRIs were developed by physicists. CAT scans were developed by physicists and on down the line. You know, there's a direct interrelationship between the physical and, and uh, other sciences. So uh, Newt, Newt's got it right now, but it's too bad he didn't get it right when I was trying to get more money. Another question. Go ahead. You know these folks. Uh, <laughs> I see it. Julia, you want to stand up a minute? Just I, want to, I was going to introduce you anyway. So, uh, Julia is a PhD chemist. She works in my staff in my office and just a marvelous person and also a, a Christian. And uh, she has done wonderful, wonderful work for me. Uh, she, uh, both of us could, could talk to you about that. But a lot of, a lot of people ask that question. Uh, why am I quitting? Well, there are a number of factors. Uh, first is that I am, and I realize I look much, much younger than that, uh, but uh, I'm 76 years old, and that's, you know, that's uh, 11 years past normal retirement age, what is considered normal retirement age. Uh, another reason is uh, my wife wouldn't like me to, and that's a very important factor. She's been living largely alone for uh, quite a few years now. I've been there 17 years, and that's uh, quite a long time. Another factor, which I don't publicize too much, but when I first was elected to the state house of representatives, and I, you know, I was, this was brand new life to me to be in the state legislature, and I watched and. You know, I'm, I'm a good watcher, a good observer as a scientist, and I watch what other people do and learn a lot from that. And uh, I, I just watched some people, and some were very good people, very, very bright, worked hard, and presented really good results. And uh, But there were some who were just a bit old, uh, sort of doddering around a little bit and uh, not really contributing very much. After watching them for a while, I sort of uttered a silent prayer to the Lord and said, Lord, please give me the sense to quit before I get that way. <laughs> and uh, I think that's what I'm doing. So I hope I can encourage others to run. But I've given my 17 years, and I think that's quite a bit. And I, uh, I think I've accomplished a lot. But I think I still have a, left, a lot left to do and accomplish. Uh, so we'll see how it goes. And I may go on the lecture circuit. If, they, if, if as many people in all my audiences laugh as much as you have, then it's worth it to me to go on the, on the lecture tour. But when they stop laughing, it's time for me to quit, too. Thank you very much. Thank you. Are you I hope I didn't go too long.